0: And he always said to me when I told him I wanted to be a diversity officer, he goes, Doug, why would you want to spend your career talking about race, ethnicity, age, gender? He's like, Doug, you are in a no-win situation. Don't dedicate your career to that. Where I said, Dad, the biggest opportunity and need, just like you did civil rights law just like Ben did aviation, just like Ben Sr. did army, I feel that corporations would benefit one American to have someone advise them on these topics that have historically been unspoken of because the younger generations are becoming way more vocal and it's becoming a lever that people expect.
1: Hey, this is Epicenter, NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm your host, Curtis Rouser. In author and Chief Diversity Officer Doug Melville's latest book, Invisible Generals, he shares the story of his great-uncle and great-great-uncle, America's first Black generals, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Jr. The two men were instrumental in integrating the American military and also created the Tuskegee Airmen. But despite their contributions as veterans, they haven't gotten the credit they deserve. In fact, Doug's book was sparked by the misrepresentation of his great-uncle in the George Lucas film Red Tails. Now, he's correcting historical oversights and celebrating America's first black flying squadron. Today, as Veterans Day approaches, Epicenter's Esmetra Kalita sits down with Doug to discuss his experience assembling a mosaic of family history and the leadership lessons learned along the way.
2: Where did the idea for the book come about?
1: Well, the
0: idea for me to research my family came about from attending a screening of red tails where the commander who was played in a movie by Terrence Howard in the movie red tails was general Benjamin O Davis. It was Colonel Davis in the movie. So I was invited to a screening to see him as the patriarch of our family, as were other Tuskegee airmen. Many people were invited to a screening and when Terrence Howard showed up on screen and he was addressed as Colonel Bullard. I couldn't believe that they didn't use the real names in the movie. So I never really got the exact answer why it was an amalgamation. It's not a documentary. This is Hollywood, you know, all those kind of answers, which was fine. But for me, as a you know, younger generation and product of entertainment or edutainment. I felt if you're going to tell this story, you should use the real names. Now, I went back and told my dad and I was furious. And my dad said, well, what are you going to do about it? And that was when I made a commitment two ways. I found my purpose, which was to make the invisible visible. And I switched my career to become a diversity officer in that moment.
2: So tell us a little bit about what you found um, and how you found it. What was your process for writing this and researching your, your own story? Well,
0: the first process was talking to my dad because it's a firsthand account and family members. So that was number one. Um, the second part of my process was uh, to make Google alerts, to go on eBay, to search LinkedIn, find people or notifications in the universe of things that may just be hidden in plain sight that I just overlooked and didn't really know. And I think one of the, the the hidden realities in our world that we totally overlook is what is tagged in the photos. See, when you go to eBay or someone sends you a photo, or you go to a presidential library, it could say President Carter and others. It could say a group of people. But if the names aren't tagged, then the effort to find and uncover this is is there, but it takes much longer. So I had known that Ben and his dad were both black generals, but I did not know. And even my dad didn't know that they were the only two black officers in the entire United States out of three hundred and thirty five thousand people at the start of World War Two. And we didn't know that they were the first two black generals and a father and a son who worked together in tandem. So we kind of put some things together as well. And that was reading their individual books, getting my dad's information, making Google alerts and then going through research. And then what it ended up was presidential libraries, the Smithsonian, the U.S. Army War College, West Point Military Academy, Air Force uh Um, USAFA, the Air Force Academy. So they had grades, things underground. Then I had historians reach out to me. They were trying to help me find things. Then I had Tuskegee Airmen families reach out to me and they were telling me things. So it was a real potluck research, but I think as a first-time author, there was enough material to find it versus nothing at all that you couldn't locate.
2: Is there any one or two anecdotes that are like this... Oh my God. Aha moment. Or do you have a lot of those?
0: Well, there was a, there was definitely a few aha moments. I think part of it was uh, Ben Davis jr's name wasn't in the West point online directory. So in 2015, when we were just, you know, there's a, there's a directory that has every graduate in there. It just wasn't in there. You know, there was a lot of small things where you just couldn't really put a finger on why. And, and, The surprise to me was when you go to West Point today, everybody's nice and no one actually knows who did it, why it's not there. It's not like when you contact the Smithsonian and this was something that I had a misconception or bias about. I thought when I called the Smithsonian, they were going to be like, no way, we don't want to do it. But they were so loving But the employees don't necessarily know why things are the way they are. And I think I was almost taking it a little personal, like you have all the family items, you know, but it was more like we're open to tell you this is our process. Um, So that was an interesting antidote, I think, from a museum and history anecdote that was very interesting in the research there's a report called the U.S. Army War Report that came out in the 20s or 30s. I'd have to get the exact date, but it basically was issued to speak on the inferiority of blacks in in military and in battle. And it was used as a reference point uh, for a lot of the practices that were causing segregation. And it was used. It was there was no doctors that were actually used to put this together. It was just a committee. That was put together at the United States Army War College, just ironically, because it's important that this document is the document that held back black Americans in the military for decades. The Army War College is actually the archive that owns all of Benjamin O. Davis Sr.'s archives. So I thought the irony that this institution wrote this document to limit his career, yet they emailed the family time and time and time and time again to gather his possessions was a very ironic turn that I wasn't sure how it sat with me.
2: Yeah, I could I could feel that. Um, Just to summarize the book itself, you trace the history if I'm if I'm recalling this right, is it five black generals?
0: Yeah. So um the, the story uncovers the, the invisible generals is the story of America's first two black generals, a father and a son. The father was in the army, the son was in the air force, who worked to desegregate the military and also helped create and command the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, after they retired, though, and I think this is the part of the story that is that was also very mind blowing to me. After Ben Jr., the son, retired from the military in 1967, after being uh, not allow- um, prevented from gaining his fourth star. So he should have been a four-star general in 1967 under LBJ. They did not give him his fourth star. Um, and what, what had been told through the family was LBJ had done enough for integration uh, or, I'm sorry, LBJ had done enough for civil rights because he had um, appointed Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court and also had passed Martin Luther King's agenda. So elevating Ben to the fourth star was not actually something that would gain any political progress. Mm. And another very interesting thing just on this point is most of their promotions happened right before a presidential election. As a way to garner the black vote. So many of their accomplishments, you know, happened in the last week of October, uh, surprisingly, because elections were the first, you know, Tuesday in November. So that was that was something that was very important to understand about their legacy. Now, Ben Jr. couldn't get a job in the private sector as a pilot after he retired. So the Pentagon created a role for him. And there was no job assignment or anything. They just needed to get him a role because there's no way this man could have been unemployed. And they put him at the end of the hallway in the Pentagon. And he says, the first thing we need to do is we need to treat commercial aviation like we do military aviation and ensure it's safe. So the first thing he does in 1971 creates commercial airport security, which is now the TSA. The next thing he does is he federalizes the United States air marshal program because it was state by state and creates the United States air marshal program. Those two programs were so successful and the way that he was able to communicate them because there was nervousness, because there was a lot of hijackings at the time that if you did these things, it would actually scare people off of commercial airlines. But he was able to finesse it in a way where it actually was a way to sell safety It worked so well, the Department of Transportation under Carter had him observe traditional transportation, and that was where he led the creation of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit to ensure that cars were traveling at a safe speed and idling with the maximum return on fossil fuels.
2: Oh, wow. This is amazing. So you, I guess that's what your dad was alluding to of like, you don't know the half of what we have not been given credit for.
0: Exactly. That was what he was.
2: Interesting. Wow. So I want to bring this to kind of present day um, and Mm -hmm. we'll get to your diversity efforts in a moment, but it just dawns on me having um, kind of lived through and um, directed coverage during the Trump years of how much this country relies on generals as a bit of the moral compass of this country. I just wonder if you encountered that. It sounds like from the various activities that, um your family members engaged in they upheld a certain view of america right a certain standard if you will that again i'm thinking of like the trump years and when we were like thank god for the generals right mm-hmm. i just wonder if you if you have any thoughts on that
0: well ben junior and i'm not sure about his dad but ben junior never voted And uh, what he didn't want was people to think that he was more biased towards one party or another. Between the two men, they worked with eight different presidential administrations. So they were very aware that as the only two black officers and generals, any single thing could be one day used against them. So they chose personally not to vote, but to contribute to America by dedicating their lives and their performance and their time to the country versus voting. OK, now this and, and some of the things they did back then could be looked as as controversial. Neither of them wanted to be called African-American or black American. They just wanted to be referred to as Americans because they felt if you grew up in segregation, you would see that being an American is actually a privilege but when you put names and terms in boxes it actually lowers the standard of what an overall american is and these are things that people would argue about when they would do public speaking and do q and a ben junior would always talk about people would raise their hand and go what are you talking about you know this is not you know america never you know thought this way about us so we're african american and he would always say that is your opinion and you have that right but for me I want to be a full American.
2: Well, that's so beautiful. I mean, I have um, often approached diversity from it's got to begin in the way you live your life before you start to uh, tell everyone else how to live theirs, Right. And there's something about what you're doing, which is really bridging this to the personal. So I do want to get us into the corporate setting. Um, Just tell me some ways as you're um, setting about this project, the book, and then your work, how the two come together and how that affected implementation, for example, of Mm -hmm. some of the programs.
0: When I became a diversity officer in 2012, The the role itself was much less political than it is now. The role was a way to build businesses. We actually positioned diversity when I first started in advertising, how this affected, how I thought was when we got into the ad agency, we looked at diversity as if it was a client. So we didn't want to speak for diversity per se. We said, if diversity called an ad agency and said, help me, what would we do? How will we position it? How will we communicate around it? How will we brand it? What would be the frequency? What would be the message? What would be the hero images? So we looked at it and said, if we want to implement this in a work environment where yesterday there was no diversity department and today there is one, you have to roll it in in line with the culture. And these are some of the ways that I learned through Ben is, you know, take your time, patience, use the system, work with the system to create solutions for it. You know, don't go in there and say, I'm going to do this. And the next thing I'm going to do is this, because a lot of times people do that when they get a new role or something, they'll run in there and be like, well, these are easy, low hanging fruit. But the thing about it is you have to get the base set up first. That is the first way um, that it kind of advised me. Yeah. In the first chapter of the book, I talk about the first thing you should do is uh, I talk about our family's generational collateral. So we should take inventory in our family names and our own stories Um, so the first half of the book is the story of the invisible generals, but then the second half is how to become a visible general. And I actually walk through the steps and tips on what I did, how to do it and how you could turn it on your own family. So you can build your own family uh, history too. So I think the first part of that is assessing and understanding your generational collateral, which is talking to the people in the couch that are not communicating. When I asked my dad this story, he didn't even want to tell it to me for a while. I kept asking and asking. I had to get my mom to tell me, uh, talk to him, because you don't know how that lived experience added to trauma, added to mental health, added to something. And he always said to me, when I told him I wanted to be a diversity officer, he goes, Doug, why would you want to spend your career talking about race, ethnicity, age, gender? He's like, Doug. You are in a no-win situation. Don't dedicate your career to that. Where I said, Dad, the biggest opportunity and need, just like you did civil rights law, just like Ben did aviation, just like Ben Sr. did Army, I feel that corporations would benefit one American to have someone advise them on these topics that have historically been unspoken of because the younger generations are becoming way more vocal and it's becoming a lever that people expect.
1: Invisible Generals is set to be released this week. You can find a link to purchase the book in our show notes. One last thing before we go, Epicenter NYC is excited to present our 2023 group exhibition. It's called Ground Games, taking place at the local NYC from November 1st through 30th. The exhibition was curated and organized by Nick and Mukul. For more information, press images, or sales inquiries, contact hello at epicenter-nyc.com to see profiles and links for all artists at epicenter-nyc.com slash artists. Hope to see you there. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Caravica. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.